Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to talk about President Joe Biden's foreign policy and why he's dealing from a position of weakness and and what I would say would be a purposeful weakness. There are a lot of larger news stories coming out right now dealing with Russia and China, and I believe these these news stories are revealing the Biden foreign policy position to be being what it is. It is a purposefully weak thing, and I think it's an expansion upon the Obama foreign policy that we saw in the previous decade. So that's the agenda for this week's show. So we can jump right in. And of course, this is the first podcast of the new year. Took a few weeks off there to get through the holidays. So I'm glad to have you all on board for this first episode. And like I said, at the top, I want to talk here about Biden's foreign policy and This is a White House, I think, of weakness. If I go through sort of the columns that I've been writing more and more here over the last few few weeks, this is sort of the the theme that I've had for the White House. It's one of weakness. It's one of, of inaction. It's one that doesn't appear to know what it wants to do in any given amount of time. You have Afghanistan, where we had the president literally dealing with the Taliban and, and pretending that they were going to deal honestly with us. We have now China with its saber rattling over Taiwan and other issues. You now have have Russia doing the same in Ukraine and and more across Europe. Uh, And so uh, these are situations where the United States is dealing with these situations at a position of weakness, but it's a position that is self-created. And it's exasperated because Biden is choosing more and more weakness to take on. Like I said, I think this is a continuation and expansion of the Obama foreign policy. They often thought of themselves as realists and trying to practice some form of real politic where you're you're trying to have the United States create more options for itself, create a new form of a balanced power in the world, and just all these different things. But in reality, what often happened is that you, you, off, you ended up with a weaker United States because you are enabling actual enemies, and people who are not interested in being part of a balance of power, but instead the downfall of the United States. It'd be one thing if we were balancing countries off of each other, but the Obama foreign policy often failed to do that, and you ended up with a stronger version of Russia, you ended up with China being able to sort of build quietly in the background, and Obama often misread 
frequently various situations. And what we're seeing now is an expansion of that by Biden, where he just misreads every last single situation. And this was common with him before that. If you go into his Senate career, he was often very poor at reading these situations. But the reason that I think this is an expansion upon Obama is because this is a specific kind of decline. And I'm going to play a clip here uh, by Charles Krauthammer. He gave this speech. Uh, you know, he he died a few years ago now. But in 2009, he gave a very famous speech that ended up being written down and published uh, called "Decline as a Choice." And he gave this speech with the Manhattan Institute. And so this is in two, early 2009. This is right after. You have Democrats who had just swept into power after the 2008 elections. You have Obama elected as president. You have Democrats with major- with majorities, massive majorities in the House and the Senate. And everyone's looking around at the world. They're, they're, you know, Republicans in particular were looking around. They're looking at this new foreign policy. You had Obama out in the middle of his quote-unquote apology a tour at the time. And so there was a lot going on. And... This point that he makes about decline being a choice, I think, is accurate, and it's true now. It's probably doubly true now because we can see what happened then, and we can look what's happening now, and we can see how decisions are creating a certain weakness with the United States. So here's Charles Krauthammer, the great, the late great Washington Post columnist, uh, describing decline as a choice. But I do have a lecture prepared. The topic of the lecture is American Decline, and the title is Decline is a Choice. The weather weather veins of conventional wisdom have kicked off another round of angst about American in decline. New theories, old slogans. Imperial overstretch, the Asian awakening, the post-American world, inexorable forces beyond our control, bringing the inevitable humbling of the world hegemon. On the other side of this debate are a few, notably Joe Jaffe in a recent essay in Foreign Affairs, who resists the current fashion and insist that America remains the indispensable power. They point out that these declinist predictions are cyclical, that the rise of China and perhaps India are the current version of the Japanese panic of the late 1980s or of the earlier pessimism captured best by Jean-Francois Ravel's How Democracies Perish. The anti-declinists point out, for example, that the fear of China is overblown, is based on implausible assumptions of indefinite, uninterrupted growth, ignores accumulating externalities like pollution, which can be ignored when the growth starts from a very low baseline, um, but ends up making the growth increasingly chokingly difficult, and overlooks the unavoidable consequences of the one-child policy, which guarantees that China will get old before it gets rich. Just as the rise of China is a straight-line projection of current economic trends, American decline is a straight-line projection of the fearful, pessimistic mood of a country war-weary and in the grip of a severe recession. 
among these cross currents, my thesis tonight is simple. The question of whether America is in decline cannot be answered yes or no. There is no yes or no. Both answers are wrong because the assumption that somehow there exists some predetermined inevitable trajectory, the result of uncontrollable external forces is wrong. Nothing is inevitable. Nothing is written. Decline is not a condition. Decline is a choice. America is in the position today, 20 years after the beginning of the unipolar era, that it came to dominate with the fall of the Soviet Union, of deciding whether to abdicate or retain its dominance. Decline or continued ascendancy is in our hands. Not that decline or even rise is always a choice. Britain's decline after the Second World War was foretold and indeed was, as was that of Europe, as the dominant global force uh, in the world. The civilizational suicide that was the Second World War and the consequent physical and psychological exhaustion made continued European dominance impossible. The corollary of unchosen European collapse was unchosen American ascendancy. We, whom Lincoln once called God's almost chosen people, did not save Europe twice in order to emerge from the ashes as the world co-hegemon. We went in to defend ourselves and save civilization. Our dominance after the Second World War was not sought, nor was the even more remarkable dominance after the Soviet collapse. We are the rarest of geopolitical phenomena, the accidental hegemon. And given our isolationism and lack of instinctive imperial ambition, the reluctant hegemon. And now, after a near decade of strenuous post 9-11 exertion, more reluctant than ever. Which leads to my second proposition. Facing the choice of whether to maintain our dominance or to gradually, deliberately, willingly, indeed relievedly, give it up. We are headed currently on a course towards the latter. The current liberal ascendancy in the United States, controlling the executive and the Congress, dominating the media and elite culture, has set us on a course for decline. And this is true for both foreign and domestic policy. Indeed, they work synergistically to ensure that outcome. The current foreign policy of the United States is an exercise in contraction. It begins with the demolition of the moral foundation of American dominance. In Strasbourg, the president was asked about American exceptionalism. His answer, quote, I believe in American exceptionalism, just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism. Interesting response, because if everyone is exceptional, no one is. So that is Charles Krauthammer, and he, he was right. 
He was right then. He is right now. Uh, the United States is a global superpower. We still are. We were then. We are now. We are a global superpower both militarily and economically. There is, There are nations who are trying to get close to us, but they are not us. We are still the preeminent superpower of the world. And unlike superpowers before us, he's again right, we do not seek to rule the world, even though we do try to control things because we don't want a world running insane. Because, you know, we looked at we looked at how Europe just imploded and fought itself to death after the two world wars. We said we don't want that again. When it came time to do the, the Cold War with, with the USSR, we did not want to go to war then. America in charge of things is a dramatically more peaceful experience than what had transpired before across the globe. War is inevitable. It's always going to occur. But when you have a situation where the United States is sitting on that and trying to prevent some of these large conflicts, it is a much different experience. At least it had, that's been true so far. And what you have with, with Biden and what you had at the beginning of the Obama administration is you had this purposeful choice of weakness. And right now, you know, you have Russia where they're going in and sending troops into, into uh, Kazakhstan. You have them threatening Ukraine. And they're doing all of this now. This is not something that was happening before. It's happening now. And it's happening now because it, it, for a few reasons here. First, Biden is a weak president. That is something that you can tell just politically. You, you don't need two eyes to be able to see that. Post-Afghanistan, where the United States has has really stepped on and ruined our relationship with a lot of our allies, our word does not mean as much. You have a much weaker United States. The second, and this is very important for where we are right now, Europe in, in all the countries in the European Union, are, are in, is in the middle of an energy crisis. 40% of all oil and energy comes from Russia. It, you know, it, it is the direct supplier of energy across Europe, and prices for things like oil, natural gas, and the rest are skyrocketing. You see the inflation issues that we have here in the United States. Those are occurring over there as well, and the big one for them has been energy costs, and Russia is the major supplier there. And so when you're looking at the fact that Russia controls the energy going into these countries, they are not interested in fighting the number one supplier of their energy because they know that those costs would go up, their citizens wouldn't be able to, 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 to afford it, nor would they be able to afford it. And then the final thing here that I think is impacting things is the pandemic, because the pandemic, the global pandemic with COVID-19, is just a resource drain on everyone because all governments are having to focus on it, and so you can't focus on all these other things. So when you have you know, the pandemic, along with this energy crisis, and a weak Biden, you have a perfect mix for weaker countries like Russia to step in and start saying, okay, we want to start moving across the globe. We want to start expanding and flexing our muscles a little bit to get our influence out a little bit more and push the United States back. This is about establishing a, a larger sphere of influence for Russia. It's about expanding a larger sphere of influence for China. And they're both pursuing these types of interests in their own way, but they are pursuing it. And they're seeing that right now is the time to do that. 
with Russia in particular, and I think this is true of China, it's not that they want war. There's nothing here that says, oh yeah, these are warmongers, they want to go to war. This is about forcing concessions out of the United States and the West in general, and about expanding their power across the globe. And when you're looking at something, specifically the, the energy policy of the United States, and you're looking at, at Joe Biden here and his alliance with you know the so-called green left or the environmentalist, what you see is a set of people who want, who are purposefully ignoring how their policies are impacting not just the United States, but the world at large. You're seeing a much weaker United States because when you're handcuffed by these groups, you then give the power to people like Vladimir Putin. When you're shutting down nuclear plants, as like we've seen in places like California and places like Germany, and then you see these skyrocketing energy costs, these have consequences. And it's these green groups that do it. You have to keep these energy costs low enough. You have to engage in things like fracking. You have to bring in things like natural gas, which are clean. And you have to open up nuclear plants to keep energy cheap because cheap energy means that your your countries like Russia and even countries like the Middle East, where you've got Saudi Arabia and all them who depend heavily on oil, if they can't make as much money off their main natural resource, they are a much weaker country. During the Trump administration, you had cheap oil, you much had much cheaper oil, and people are paying less for gas. And so you didn't see these kinds of moves, because even though you still had Europe enthralled by Russian energy, it was not to the extent that it is now. When you're in at a point where inflation is an issue and higher prices are an issue, you're giving that much more power to your geopolitical foes. So these are choices. Decline and weakness, particularly in this situation, given where we are, these are this is a choice. When you're empowering the 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 thing that gives your your geopolitical foes their money, their main forms of money, and it gives them power, you're empowering them. And that's what Biden is doing in this situation. These are Choices and energy policy in particular is an ideological blinder and also a binder on the United States. And you need the United States to offset these this energy crisis here because if you increase the supply of available energy, that means more things like nuclear power, more things like natural gas, more oil, things like that, you are stripping power away from these countries like Russia and some of these others. And you want to weaken them to, you know, so they can't expand their power out. You know, we just went through an entire four years where one side of the political spectrum in the United States lost its mind over Russian influence. And the main thing giving Russia influence right now across all of Europe is their power to control the price of oil and natural gas. If Russian influence is something we have to counter, you have to look broader than just what happened in 2016. So what you what, what typically happens on the left is they like to bifurcate their issues. They want to think only domestically, you know, energy and green stuff. That is that's just separate. It's all about the environment. It has no other impact on other things. But it has a real impact. It has a real impact in foreign policy, and when you're strengthening your geopolitical foes with a domestic policy, that is a bad policy. 
because you're, you're just endangering yourself and also endangering your allies in this case by increasing Russian influence over a lot of these Eastern European countries. And since Russia is a very massive country, it also means you're giving them more influence in places across the Middle East and in the far east with all the Asian countries. So there, there's just a lot of things going on here where you have to admit that your domestic policy is having a much broader issue here. And, and the other thing, aside from energy, that's causing this greater weakness in the United States with Biden's foreign policy is, is Biden himself. Biden's instincts in terms of foreign policy are just awful. You have to remember, of the Obama administration, he may have been the worst policy analyst in the entire administration. He's the only one who said we did not need to go in and kill Osama bin Laden. You know, potentially the greatest foreign policy achievement of Obama's entire term in office, the only person who voted against that was Joe Biden. Everyone else was like, yeah, we need to go kill him. Everyone else in America is like, yeah, we should go kill him. Biden said, "Uh, no, that's probably a bad idea. That's how bad he is. The, The layups, he misses the layups. You know, former Defense Secretary Robert Gates once said that he didn't think that Biden had been on the right side of an issue in 40 years when it comes to foreign policy. And that time is just expanding. He's been wrong on every last single issue. His instincts are bad. His his ability to read a situation is bad. And this is playing out now across a myriad of issues. We saw it play out, you know, prominently last year with Afghanistan when he misread that entire situation. And at no point did he make a single right decision throughout that entire thing. He's currently misreading China and treating that situation poorly. And he's in the process of misreading Russia. So the irony here, and this is the worst, one of the worst parts about this, is that because he misreads these situations and because he positions the United States in a weak manner, that makes it more likely that these European countries and the European Union in general shifts closer to Russia because you're giving Russia more influence by saying, by pointing, by saying, you know, the United States is weak here because in international politics, there is no such thing as a power vacuum. Something always steps in to fill a power vacuum in international relations. It's true in all politics, but it's particularly true in international relations because all these countries are are dealing with each other. You don't have there's not some you know wide you know con- global constitution that prevents one party from from stepping in. If you have the power, you can step in. And so when the United States steps out, something is going to come in and fill that position. And Russia and China and some of these other groups are doing that. So that's that's the deal here. When you have when you're, the irony of this energy crisis is that as the United States continues to be weak here, it makes these countries more beholden to Russia because that's who's giving them this energy. They depend on them, so they have to to you know kiss up and make well with Russia. So weakness breeds more weakness. You have to offset this and, and fix these sorts of things. So um, that that's what I'm talking about, the Biden foreign policy and how it's, it, it, it's a choice. And it is inherently weak. And, and you know, you have Biden, it, Biden's incapacity to read a situation combined with bad choices here. And then he, the natural inclination of the left to always go towards a weaker position because this is the party that effectively 
once Reagan took went into office, the hawks of the Democratic Party all left and became Republicans. That may be changing right now in a post-Trump world, but for now, the Democratic Party basically doesn't have a hawkish bone in its body anymore. And so that's all left up to the Republican side. And so looking ahead here, Biden has a lot of big issues here. You know, you have... Russia and China doing their thing here. Uh, but the, the major thing here is, can they back down Russia? And I, I don't think Russia is going to go to war. Everything they're doing here is trying to get concessions out of the West. So what does Biden give up here in order to get Russia to act correctly? And how Russia does that and how you see an agreement here put together, that's going to matter because everyone's going to be watching it. How Biden decides to do this is going to matter because everyone's going to want to try to do the same thing to get concessions out of the United States. So what do we end up giving up to get Russia to treat Ukraine correctly and to to treat some of these other countries correctly? Uh, China's going to watch this very carefully because, for one, China doesn't actually have a full level of trust in Russia. In fact, Chinese mistrust of Russia is one of the reasons that you get the the opening of, of, of Chinese and U.S. relations under Kissinger and, and Nixon. They saw pretty cleverly that the Chinese were worried about an invasion from Russia, or then the Soviets, and so they were more opening to talking to the United States. Well, that's still true. You, you have the, uh, an inherent level of distrust between the Chinese Communist Party and, and Vladimir Putin's Russia. And so that's always there. But China's going to be watching here to say, okay, we're, we've got our issues here with Taiwan. What can we you do to use that to pull concessions at the United States to expand our sphere of influence, our sphere of influence broader and, and, and across, you know, just outside of our, our basic regional area? How do we become more global? And with them, there's going to be a lot of things like economic health are going to play into this, uh, how a pandemic goes out this. There's a lot of different factors here. But they're going to be watching this. And one of the things, and I've I've gradued about this before, but one of the ways that the Biden administration has failed this pandemic in spectacular fashion is they have not forced China to answer for everything that's gone wrong here. And I don't mean blaming for blaming them for stuff and doing things like that, although that has importance. But when you're talking about making China pay for the pandemic, it's getting all these countries that have become more beholden to China to look at this pandemic and say, okay, this was bad. This came out of China. But the United States has solved this, and they're willing to work with us to solve this pandemic in our house, and all we have to do is sort of blame China for this. The pandemic is a perfect time to ostracize China and isolate them a little bit more because they failed every step of the way. Early on, they gave out bad tests. Their tests that China sent out were awful. The PPE that they sent out was awful and didn't work for a lot of developing country hospitals and healthcare workers. And the vaccines that China developed also didn't work. That's why they're more interested in talking about mixing vaccines, because they they need at least one shot of ours to work. And the United States has at its disposal the vaccines we've approved. We could approve many others as well. We should be using this to push back the Chinese across the globe. But there is not even the hint of imagination from the Biden administration that they are thinking in this fashion. We should be using this pandemic to really push back against China and Russia and showing that the United States is a global leader. And when there's a big issue like this, 
We are the ones to solve it, along with our allies, you know, the British, the French, so on and so forth. But we have to be the ones to control the, the solution here, and we are not stepping into that role at, at all. And it's astonishing that it's not happening, but it is also another way in which the Biden administration is dealing at a moment as a at a position of weakness. Where they are, it's a position of weakness because they refuse to take on the strength. And the strength is that we practically solved this, and we could solve it for the rest of the world too. But we're not doing that. So it's very frustrating to to look at the Biden administration day in and day out because they've got some really big issues coming down the pike. We're going to have to deal with Russia and China over this next year. Um, they're going to, you know, with China, they're going to be, you've got their elections and everything they're going to be doing there. And with Russia, you've got the ongoing way that they're amassing troops and stuff with Ukraine. All of it bent towards trying to get concessions out of the United States. So. Those countries are trying to bring these to a head to force the United States to accept more powerful versions of Russia and China in the world, and we're going to have to see the Biden administration deal with that. Now, how they decide to do that, I don't know, but up until now, the way they've decided to solve it has been weakness, and they have chosen decline, and they've chosen weakness. And I think it's important to note that when when you hear them talk about it, they're going to try to spin it as this is all inevitable. The United States is on the down downtrend right now, but that's not true. These are decisions and these are choices, and we could flip this pretty quickly, but they are choosing not to, and that's the most important part of that. So that's all I've got today talking about Biden and his foreign policy. If you've got questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter will go out early Friday morning. So make sure to sign up before that, and you'll get the next issue. And yes, we are back now for the full year. Everything's going back. Columns going out, newsletters going out, everything's back to normal. So thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.